Welcome to episode 28, Training Heart and Truth. privilege to have you on today well thank you it's my privilege to be here i'm sorry about the last minute confusion but i, I thought the zoom link would be there and it wasn't so you know what that's my wrong. fault uh, that's my fault i should have sent it a few days ago i'm, I'm kind of new to the zoom thing it's uh, it's not as popular in ireland as it is in the states i think you know uh-huh. but um listen thanks very much for taking taking the time out to speak to me today um, this is this podcast is called training thought and truth and it's really basically about the mental physical and spiritual kind of truths of life and I like getting guests on who have some kind of experience or you know, expertise in certain fields and I know that you have uh, quite an amazing story that fits the bill for uh, for this exactly. Well good well yeah it sounds like a natural fit so I'm glad you uh, asked me to be on. Yeah so for, for people who, uh, who don't know uh, Dr. Ivan Alexander sorry Dr. Dr. Evan Alexander is my distinguished guest today, a neurosurgeon and author who had a life-changing experience after falling ill in 2008. Um, But maybe, Evan, instead of me reading out kind of my research, you could tell maybe an introduction to yourself and a bit of your background. Sure. Um, I think important to point out that before my coma, I'd spent 54 years of my life honing a very Kind of scientific worldview. I was a neurosurgeon, uh, spent 15 years teaching at Harvard Medical School, thought I understood something about brain, mind, and consciousness. In addition, I'll point out that I grew up in a, a religious house, household. My father, was, my father was very influential uh, in my life. He was a neurosurgeon. He actually ran a neurosurgical training program. He was a globally renowned uh, scientist and uh, neurosurgeon. And yet he had a very profound belief in God and power of prayer. I mean, he never doubted that in all of his scientific knowing. Uh, it was all perfectly consistent in his life that you could have a, a loving, powerful God and that prayer would work. And yet I grew up in the 60s and 70s, like many of that generation. I knew that science was a pathway to truth. And of course, the mistake I made, like so many in our modern culture make, is they think that science is just you know, reductive materialism. It's the notion that only the physical world exists and that, um, you know, all you need to understand are the laws governing the natural world. And the problem with that, of course, is it truly ignores and disses consciousness, um, you know, some epiphenomenon or some illusion or something that's not real. But in fact, as I came to see in my journey, the only thing that is real is consciousness and our conscious kind of interaction with the universe uh, and with each other. And, and that's where my journey became such a powerful catalyst, uh, certainly in my life. And, uh, you know, I communicate with uh, scientists around the world who were fascinated by the profound mystery of consciousness. And 
what I can tell you is uh, my experience and my shift, and that's not just what happened from my near-death experience, which, uh, you know, modern neuroscience would say could not have happened. I mean, that was the original thing that, that fired up my interest and was the impetus for writing scientific papers about this and ultimately about writing Proof of Heaven, uh, the book that tells my story. But when I look back on it all, Proof of Heaven is a little more than a question mark. Uh, it simply says, oh my gosh, these things are real. Materialism clearly is dead. It doesn't explain these kind of phenomena that are out there by the millions. Uh, you know, but what's necessary? And it's been the ensuing 11 and almost a half years now since the coma, collaboration with scientific colleagues around the world uh, that has been very important in helping me come to, uh, you know, a new world view, which is where all of this is headed. Our entire scientific community is headed out of the bleak and paltry fiction of materialist thought that pretends the brain creates consciousness uh, into a far richer world where we realize that we're souls, that our soul does not end with the death of the body. In fact, reincarnation is a giant part of the package uh, that's been scientifically studied. So clearly, uh, you know, the, the kind of brain, mind, and consciousness I was trying to study back before my coma was only a tiny, small subsegment of what's really there to be examined. And that's why I would say anecdotes uh, like the millions of NDEs, all the tremendous scientific evidence for things like telepathy, uh, precognition, uh, psychokinesis, all of these uh, kind of non-local consciousness effects that go beyond our conventional view of the, the brain and mind and their influence on matter. Um, is a revolution in scientific understanding that is coming at just the right time. Uh, we really need this. But for me, the real impetus were, were the factual details of my, of my case. That's all been published now. There's a, a case report on my medical records. It came out in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease in um, September of 2018. And anybody can access that report for free if you just go to my website, evanalexander.com, look in my blog postings, and right there in the September of 2018 is a blog posting about how the recent publication validates the medical facts of my case. And that was a, kind of an extraordinary confirmation. In fact, the doctors who wrote that report uh, were not involved in my care, but they were fascinated by my extraordinary recovery, uh, which really defies any kind of Western medical explanation. That's also, of course, what drove me to uh, report all this. I realized you can't have that kind of profound, ultra-real experience when you have documented scientific evidence of the shutdown of your entire neocortex and other parts of the brain that were badly damaged. You know, it completely upturns the, the uh, kind of modern view of the brain-creating consciousness. But the reality is there are hundreds of scientists out there studying consciousness who already realize that the evidence is, is everywhere. And in fact, the scientific evidence for reality, not only the afterlife, but of reincarnation is uh, all through this world. I mean, Living in a Mindful Universe, our third book, the one that I co-wrote with my life partner, Karen Newell, goes a long way into discussing all the science that supports this reality. Uh, and it's the most uh, uh, straightforward interpretation of quantum physics, which is one of the most basic statements of the mind-brain connection and kind of question of their relationships. Yeah. Uh, and what quantum physics has been trying to tell us for more than 80 years 
is a consciousness, is a property of the universe. It's a fundamental property. And that humans basically borrow that. Uh, we borrow it in our mentation. We borrow it in our ability of the brain, which serves as a filter or transceiver to access consciousness and to access memory. Because memories are not stored in the brain either. That's something we go into great detail about in Living in a Mind for Universe. Um, but this is all a tremendous revolution of understanding and awakening that is much more empowering to, to humanity and to individuals, uh, uh, sentient beings. Yeah, and I think, you know, like you said, it's great to hear that the uh, scientific community are shifting towards that, in, that pulling away from the materialist. Because like you said, you know, last year, especially, I, I really delved into a bit of this stuff because I, I love to study and publications on neuroscience because it's just fascinating stuff, you know, that, you know, trying to locate our consciousness to try and come up with reasons for it or how our thoughts even process and manifest themselves. It's, it's so um, bizarre that we have such technological leaps at the moment, but we can't, you know, explain the basic, you know, makeup of our brains or how we even no, communicate we with have, each other. We have no idea. It's, ca it's called the hard problem of consciousness. It was yeah. first formally put out there by David Chalmers in his 1996 book, The Conscious Mind. But of course, it had been brewing for decades. Uh, I mean, people, scientists all around the world had been coming up with a glaring deficits of the conventional model of brain creates consciousness. Uh, for example, Thomas Nagel, the, the famous uh, NYU philosopher, uh, um, he, he wrote several essays that, that made it very clear that uh, there were huge problems with, you know, neo-Darwinianism and uh, the kind of models that, uh, that our conventional science is trying to put out there that just failed miserably. Yeah. Um, John Searle and his uh, tale of the Chinese room, uh, that's another example of how we were building towards a deeper understanding that the brain is not the producer of consciousness. One of my favorites, Dr. Wilder Penfield, a renowned neurosurgeon uh, who worked in Montreal and was uh, very well known around the world uh, for his scientific expertise as a neurosurgeon in the mid and late 20th century. Um, and he wrote a fantastic book summarizing his career uh, in 1975. That book is called The Mystery of the Mind, where he makes it very clear again and again and again and again as a scientist studying the brain. And, and he was in very beautiful position to comment on this due to his work of stimulating the brain in awake patients. Now, I've done a lot of those cases myself. I know how all of that works. Um, uh, and I really default to uh, Penfield's work because he was such a respected scientist and, and really focused on memory and consciousness in a lot of his studies. Uh, and I was doing other things that weren't quite as focused in that direction. Uh, but uh, in his book, he makes it very clear that the soul is real, the spiritual world is real. You cannot explain that through the physical workings of the brain. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, since 1975, we've learned a tremendous amount more, especially about quantum physics and how more and more refined the experiments are proving that the, the best explanation is really uh, objective idealism, where the mental layer of the universe is responsible for top-down causation. And uh, human beings get to experience uh, that. Uh, you know, the bottom-up causality that some quantum physicists are still mired down in, like uh, Sean Carroll, just have to do with the fact that they're not acknowledging uh, the tremendous evidence for top-down causality. And for those who are technically interested in that, I would steer you to the work of George F.R. Ellis, a South African mathematician, 
who has written extensively about top-down causation in quantum systems. And it's really very important to get uh, where this is all going. I love a lot of Bernardo Castro's work. He's a, a very a quantum, physically enlightened philosopher and scientist. He works at CERN. Uh, people who want to know more can go to his site, Bernardo Castro with a K.com. Uh, but, but he's a big supporter of our work. And we, of course, support his work. Uh, he's an endorser of Living in a Mindful Universe. But he's done a beautiful job of connecting the dots uh, from quantum physics to help make a strong case for objective idealism. Our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, uh, supports uh, objective idealism, but from a much broader perspective. Because we look not only at quantum physics uh, and, and how that uh, suggests the reality of primacy of mind, but we also look at neuroscience of consciousness and specifically those issues that make it the hard problem. It's not a hard problem for consciousness at all. It's a hard problem for materialist scientific thinking. Yeah. And uh, also we have to invoke multiple arguments in our book from the uh, viewpoint of parapsychology, the reality of things like uh, telepathy, of precognition, how in many ways we can know the future, of psychokinesis, how people can use their mind to manipulate physical objects. Uh, of remote viewing, one of the most scientifically proven uh, uh, aspects of non-local consciousness. Uh, remote viewing is a very uh, uh, profound piece of evidence that uh, our mind has access to information all around this universe and not localized just in the here and now of our physical bodies. Um, and then of course, near-death experiences, shared death experiences, shared death or just like near-death experiences, except they happen in physiologically normal, healthy people. So they completely defy the simplistic medical uh, non-explanations like, oh, it's the diminished oxygen tension or increased CO2 and the dying patient it causes the brain to create hallucinations. Well, no, that's not true at all. Uh, it doesn't match the data. If you study NDEs and share death experiences, you find a profound amount of evidence that they're absolutely real and they show eternity of soul and connection of our souls across multiple lifetimes. And then, of course, there's all the scientific evidence for reincarnation. Anybody wants to learn more, go to uvadops.org, University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies. More than six decades of scientific work, beginning with Dr. Ian Stevenson, now Dr. Jim Tucker carries on that work. They've studied more than 2,500 cases of past life memories in children. Uh, where a, a very reasonable explanation is reincarnation. In many of those cases, it's the only uh, sensible explanation. 35% of those 2,500 cases actually had a birthmark corresponding with the lethal injury of a prior lifetime. I mean, you know, when you get into this literature, you cannot dismiss it. You simply cannot. Um, and that's why I often say the evidence is already all around us. It's there for anyone who chooses to study it. Um, uh, you will not come away doubting that afterlife and reincarnation are absolutely real aspects of human existence. And that we simply, in our models of brain and mind and understanding of consciousness, need to expand our theoretical models to more fully incorporate all of these fascinating kind of properties of, of human existence. You know, I read a very interesting statistic the other day um, that up to 2005, 90%, sorry, 95% of the world's cultures are known to have some mention of near-death experiences. And it makes me think that maybe, you know, along with technical advances and what we know about the brain, 
this is all coming to a forefront because of maybe the age of the internet and us able to communicate information among different parts of the globe now as well. And we're just that bit more connected and we're putting the pieces together bit by bit. You know, so. right. um, but could I bring you back to just before your, your, your story, your neurosurgeon, um, what kind of, like you said, you had a materialistic view on life, um, but you're obviously, like your father, very um, interested in neuroscience. Uh, that's how he got into it. Um, so what exactly happened, if you can run me through, what exactly happened to your, you? You mean during my, my coma experience? in the yeah, exactly. Oh, I, I love sharing that story, but I, I have to try not to uh, wax uh, too loquacious because it's a beautiful thing to share, but I know people want to get kind of at the scientific basis and all that. But the, the reality is important to point out that uh, when I went into coma and my brain was being overrun with this extremely aggressive bacterial infection, it really uh, knocked me out of this world very rapidly. Uh, and so I found myself in this... Uh, a kind of a deep underground kind of realm. Um, and uh, I had no memories of my life. In fact, I had no words, no language, no knowledge of Evan Alexander's personal events of life, none of my religious beliefs, none of my scientific knowledge. Every bit of it was completely gone. A tabula rasa, an empty slate. And of course, in the early weeks and months after my coma, all that made sense because I thought, I was just beginning to uncover the more I went back to the hospital, talked with my doctors, went through medical records, went through my CT and MRI scans, neurologic exams, etc. I was shocked because I was finding the medical record of somebody who wasn't going to make it. Uh, in fact, my doctors estimated I went from a 10% chance of survival early in the week of coma down to a 2% chance of survival by the end of the week when I had not responded to three very powerful intravenous antibiotics. I'd spent seven days on a ventilator. Uh, my neurologic exam, even on the first day, was very, very damaged, showing global uh, kind of impact on my neocortical function that would have disallowed any kind of dream or hallucination, confabulation, any kind of exotic experience was negated by the documented damage to my neocortex. In fact, my brainstem was even badly damaged on day one. Uh, all of that is made very clear in, in that case report. And that's why this was all such a shocker to me. Now, it all started in what I call the earthworm's eye view, a very primitive course unresponsive realm. Uh, and even though I, my language was gone and all my memories of Earth and the universe were gone, I could still have curiosity and wonder who, what, where. But there was never any kind of flicker of response. Uh, but the good news is that earthworm eye view did not last forever. I was rescued from that by this slowly spinning pure white light uh, that came to me and it had a perfect musical melody associated with it. And music and vibration frequency end up being very important uh, in this journey because I found that that is really how our souls navigate uh, those spiritual realms. So in fact, that first perfect melody with that beautiful light turned into a portal and led up out of that dark uh, kind of danky, um, Earthworm I view into a brilliant ultra real gateway valley. Uh, and in, in that realm, there were many Earth-like features. I mean, I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing. At no point in time did I have any kind of body awareness at all. And again, I never had any memory of Earth, of Evan Alexander's experience as a, a physical being living on Earth. That was never part of this experience. Uh, and in that beautiful gateway valley, 
there were millions of other butterflies, and I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly way. And we were looping and spiraling in these vast formations against this incredibly gorgeous meadow that was filled with life and, and lush with fertility. Uh, I, I remember sensing, you know, blossoms, buds on trees, flowers, opening up in these rich uh, uh, tapestries of color and of, of kind of tactile experience. Even though I had no body, I, I was uh, experienced knowledge through identification. That's the phrase I use to explain how we know things in that realm. And it's very different from hearing with the ears, seeing with the eyes, having all the information filtered as it is by our brain when we're in these physical bodies. There, it's like drinking from the fire hose, you know, pure awareness coming in because we become huge swathes of the scene around us. Uh, that would be the realm where, for example, near-death uh, near experience life reviews occur. If you go back through the literature, thousands of years of near-death experiences, you find that 25 to 50% of, of near-death experiences have some form of life review where people go back through the main events of their life that still offer teaching points interesting thing about the life review is it doesn't occur from your perspective. It occurs from the perspective and the emotional truth of those around you who were impacted by your uh, thoughts and, and your actions. Uh, and so the life review is a profound teacher because we have to reap what we sow in a life review. You feel the impact that your actions and thoughts had on others from their perspective. Uh, it's one of the reasons why it's such a, a beautifully efficient way to kind of help serve as that final arbiter of lessons learned in this lifetime in the presence of souls of departed loved ones and that infinitely loving God force. There's no judgment from that loving God force. The judgment comes from kind of our higher soul perspective uh, in the presence of all that love where, you know, any of the kind of selfish or greedy things we might have done in life, any handing out of pain and suffering to others looks especially bad. Uh, in fact, I'm convinced that uh, our concepts of hell came from life reviews where people had been so busy mistreating others that when they had to be on the business end of that in a life review, it was no fun. Um, but anyway, so the reality is uh, in this journey on this butterfly wing, I was uh, shown all this uh, tremendous beauty of that realm, all the thousands of beings dancing in that meadow down below us. When I came back to this world, uh, in coming months and wrote up my experience as best I could remember it, I described them as souls between lives. Uh, and uh, all that dancing and joy and merriment. And I remember children playing and dogs jumping, incredible festivities. And all of it was being fueled because up above were these swooping orbs of pure spiritual beings emanating uh, these uh, uh, golden dusty trails uh, against that blue-black velvety sky and the entire scene lit with clouds of billowing color. Um, and those angelic choirs were emanating chants and anthems and hymns that would just thunder through my awareness, this, this profound awareness of the loving force. Uh, and it's an infinitely healing force of love, uh, that God force. And of course, that's something that some religions have, have certainly tried to emphasize and bring to this world. Uh, I would say that it's time for all of our religions to converge around their deepest truths of oneness, of compassion, of mercy, and of love for all fellow beings, and discard the silly, um, ignorant uh, kind of uh, orthodoxy um, in kind of scriptures and writings for the mass public consumption that lead to false uh, sense of, of competition between those faiths. It's better that we look at the 
origins in the mystical traditions and return to that, uh, you know, meditation and prayer and, and this notion of oneness and love binding us all. Now, it turns out that that, that uh, Gateway Valley was in many ways just a gateway. That was, you know, that's where I experienced my first full bore uh, re-exposure to that sense of the divine, to that loving God force. In fact, I can remember on the wings of that butterfly, uh, my first knowing of that uh, God presence was like a soft summer breeze uh, or uh, what I call the breath of God, a divine wind that blew across as I was uh, on this butterfly wing. And it was my first recognition of the infinite healing power of that God force. Now, at that point, I was also noticing that I wasn't alone on the butterfly wing. And those who've read my book, Proof of Heaven, will remember there was a beautiful guardian angel there. And uh, her importance cannot be uh, overstated. She was absolutely essential to my understanding of all this. In fact, that's really how the book Proof of Heaven comes to a uh, kind of closure around the power of this experience was the really realization I had four months after coma into the identity of that beautiful girl on the butterfly way. But in the midst of the experience, she just brought me a tremendous sense of refreshing kind of liberation and ah, I'm home again. The spiritual home is truly uh, deeply uh, the source of, of my being. And uh, I remember she looked at me with this look of pure love and these sparkling blue eyes, high cheekbones, broad smile, high forehead, soft brown hair, framing her lovely face. Uh, she was dressed in the same kind of simple peasant garb uh, as I described all those beings dancing in the meadow down below us, but beautiful colors and colors beyond the rainbow. Um, and her message to me was very simple. And I think the primary message I was to bring back in, in telling my story because it's for all souls. You are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You will be taken care of. And I, I mean, chills run up my spine and I just have this flutter in my heart whenever I, I witness that. And I know whenever I tell that story in public and I've done it uh, literally more than uh, 500 times, uh, often I have this same incredible feeling uh, of love and warmth and, and uh, it just reminds me of what it was like to first encounter her. Yeah. And certainly when I've told this story in front of hundreds of near-death experiencers, many of whom have a very thin veil and can see spirit life <clears throat> richly, they end up telling me that she's standing behind me as this beautiful guardian angel even now. And I can feel that, but I cannot see it. Yeah. Uh, and I've certainly come to know her in meditation. Uh, I've described a lot of that in Living in a Mindful Universe about how I use sacred acoustics meditation. Those who want to learn more, go to sacredacoustics.com. But the reality is I meditate an hour or two or even three a day when I have time. And that is to return to my NDE, not only to recover the memories from it, but to develop a much richer relationship uh, with the entities and, and forces and that uh, indescribable force of love. Um, and so the core realm was kind of my final ascent. The core realm is one that you cannot really put into words. The angelic choirs of the, of the Gateway Valley provided the portal to that higher level. So I saw initially going from the earth where my view of uh, space and time of the material realm collapsing down. But then uh, there's a different ordering of causality in that spiritual realm that I call deep time. And I saw even that uh, collapsing down until I got to the core realm, which essentially was in, in infinity and eternity. Uh, I witnessed the entire higher dimensional multiverse 
all compacted down as this highly complex oversphere that was there as part of the lessons that were to be imparted. Again, much of it knowledge by identification, becoming huge swathes of all this. And uh, that story can go on and on, and that's what I don't want to just dwell on without more focused kind of questions and, yeah. and, and answers in this interview. But the reality is, in that core realm, that uh, uh, infinite healing power, that divine force of, 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 of God, which is so reassuring to millions of near-death experiencers who come back to this world and know there's nothing to fear about death, um, that uh, we naturally belong in this world, but this is not our only or even our home base of existence. Uh, although important to point out, this is where we get the work done as souls. We come into these lives, we know we'll be temporarily dumbed down to all that our higher soul knows, uh, you know, that we re-encounter between lives or through deep meditation or spontaneous epiphanies that are revealed to us in our life like in an NDE. Um, but this is all about uh, living those lives more fully. And so the most precious and powerful lessons that come out of near-death experiences and out of that whole tremendous and beautiful literature are not about, you know, what it's like when we die and what do we expect there and trying to reassure us about the reality of our souls. But much more important is the lessons that NDEs bring about how we need to live this life. Our entire civilization is still trapped and sucker-punched into believing that we're separate beings, that our life has no no real purpose, that it's birth to death and nothing more, and that is all false. It's a false narrative that is very confusing and leads to tremendous angst in trying to live these lives because I think many of us sense at some deep level we have you know, flickerings of that memory of between lives and past lives. In fact, the whole world of transpersonal psychology built on the work of, of brilliant clinical investigators like Dr. Stan Groff, Dr. Michael Newton, Dr. Brian Weiss, transpersonal psychology has treated more than 100,000 patients over the last few decades uh, very strongly showing that the best way to make sense of any of the events in this life are to realize that we built up kind of a karmic uh, picture in previous lives and we're now trying to work through the various issues so that in fact the hardships and challenges, and that certainly includes illness and injury, um, I see these as gifts. These are the stepping stones that mark a pathway forward. And it's really how we deal with that and how we use our free will to make choices in dealing with the hardships of life, choices that have to do with recovering the love of the universe for us, and choices that have to do with recovering the sense of love that we share with others, with all our fellow beings, love, compassion, kindness. These are the deep and powerful lessons that need to come out of near-death experiences and need to shape this entire world because the materialist model that pretends that we're, you know, just these little automatons that don't even have free will, and believe it or not, that's where materialist, conventional materialist, reductive, uh, reductive materialist science leads, is it's all just chemical reactions, electron fluxes in the brain, the consciousness is just an illusion, pay it no mind, that's what they will try and teach you. And they will also try and tell you your awareness comes to a screeching halt when your brain and body die. That's the exact opposite of what actually happens. What happens is you're liberated from the shackles of the, uh, of the prison of the brain and body. Uh, and this is a very crucial thing to get. And that's what NDEs are telling us. 
That's what all of these deathbed uh, visitations and the after-death communications, which are very, very common. In fact, it's probably the most common way, certainly in, in North America, for people to be aware of the reality of the spiritual universe is through after-death communications. In fact, I've had thousands of people come up to me after talks and say that the greatest gift they received from a, a, a loved one was at the time of their passage or thereafter when they received a very powerful and concrete message in the now uh, of the reality of their ongoing existence and relationship. An example of that would be um, a friend of ours, uh, Larry Burke, uh, he's a radiologist in North Carolina, wrote a beautiful book, uh, How Your Dreams Can Save Your Life. Uh, and in that book, he tells the story of over 40 breast cancer patients uh, who had a premonitory dream. And that dream is what led them to the doctor, to a mammogram, what have you, and led to an early diagnosis. And often, the voice in that dream was a departed loved one who was there to tell them to go uh, seek medical help. And that's what saved their life. So very real, not just their imagination, not just, oh, I wanted to see uh, my uh, departed mother and then she appeared to me in this dream, so maybe it was wishful thinking. Well, no, she came with an important message of very real data pertinent to the now. Go get that medical checkup, you need it. Uh, so anyway, my point is that uh, the more we can open our minds and, and, and souls and hearts in prayer uh, and meditation, uh, the more we can come to realize the deep truth of all this and then bring it into action into our lives in this world. Uh, the COVID pandemic, uh, warfare, violence, the economic polarization, where the top 400 families, for example, in the U.S. have the same amount of wealth as the bottom 60% of our economy. That is wrong and should not exist in our current system. We're here to take care of each other. Uh, you know, capitalism can certainly thrive, but it must be a generous capitalism that takes care of everyone. The least, the last, and the lost get horribly exposed, especially during this COVID pandemic as an example. Um, and of course, the COVID pandemic in many ways is just uh, alerting us that the big, giant gorilla in the room is climate change. And we've gotten into deep trouble by having politically elected leaders who denied science and that is killing tens of thousands of people in the age of the COVID pandemic, but it will kill billions in the age of climate change. This is a wake-up call, people. The real issue out there, we must address this COVID pandemic together, shore up the shortcomings in our healthcare systems, in our economic systems, uh, in our support systems for all citizens, uh, and we have to take a science-based approach to alleviating the climate crisis before it literally leads to horrific uh, uh, extinctions, uh, absolutely uh, indescribable human uh, suffering. I mean, the climate crisis is the real biggie that we must address and we must use science-informed political leadership to do so starting now. Yeah, absolutely. And um, can I just talk about, you know, you're saying about the the evidence, um, obviously the evidence is mounting year by year on near-death experiences and outer body experiences, like you're talking about. And do you think if, if these things were more widely known, you know, universally, that people would see, would start to ease off on, you know, the death of loved ones might be that little bit easier to take our, uh, you know, illnesses and passings, um, because that really would be an essential, that could change, you know, everything. It will change 
absolutely. And, uh, you know, in fact, one of the greatest sources of kind of illness and angst and maladjustment in our culture is this very unnatural fear of death. Death is one of the most natural things there. It absolutely makes new life possible. And especially when you realize that your conscious awareness is not something that's dependent on your physical brain, but in fact is filtered in by the brain, uh, allowed to express, but is liberated when, you, when your brain and body die. I mean, this is extremely uh, powerful at helping us to come to a proper adjustment with how life works. Yeah. Um, you know, reincarnation, like I said, it's a, uh, it's a real game changer. There's a beautiful essay for those who are, you know, still doubting all this. It was in Scientific American, I think about two months ago. It might be Scientific American blogs. Uh, but it's an essay about how we're really all, all kind of cynics uh, about uh, interpreting Ian Stevenson's data. I mean, that's exactly what that blog in Scientific American goes to. But he comes away with a very realistic uh, appraisal of it all, which is, yeah, it's this stupid, blind, uh, willfully ignorant cynicism that prevents the scientific community to more fully embracing all this, uh, the reality of spirit and soul, the spiritual nature of the universe. Uh, these are all things that are very apparent to those who will study the scientific data on all of this. Uh, and if you want to learn more, you know, EvanAlexander.com, I've got a reading list with more than a hundred papers and books, many of them with direct links to the original documents. Uh, it's all categorized. The evidence is all over us, all around us. There's no way to deny it, uh, but you can be willfully ignorant. Um, you know, it's, it's just a fact of life, but this world will change. I often, uh, maybe I'm going out on a limb, but I often make the statement that by 2028, no self-respecting, well-read, scientifically-minded, intellectual on earth will have any doubts whatsoever of the reality, not only the afterlife, but of reincarnation. Oh. And believe me, as the world shifts to that realization and we come to realize that we are truly bound together and have a responsibility to each other, and that that responsibility is all about love, kindness, compassion, and taking care of each other, you can bet this world will be a better place. We spent 5,000 years with religious traditions based on the journeys of various uh, kind of prophets and mystics who had had profound uh, adventures into the near-death realm uh, because, in fact, they were all journeys like that, some kind of epiphany, um, you know, seeing that the world is much bigger than just this physical world. That's what people experienced, and that's what our religious systems were based on. Um, but... Most people had not had such an experience themselves. Uh, in the late 1960s, doctors developed techniques for resuscitation of cardiac arrest patients. So in the last uh, five or six decades, we've populated this world with millions and millions of souls who have been to the other side and come back. Now, I promise you, it is so shocking and so, oh my God, ultra real, and it's not expected. They don't generally want to talk about it. You know, uh, for me, I came back uh, completely, had lost my, my prior mind. I came back uh, to this world, uh, you know, when I woke up in the ICU room and then was trying to tell my doctors about all this, all I knew was where I had just been. You know, my memories of my, of my life before coma had been deleted, but they came back like a gently falling snow over the next two months. And as that was happening, I was going to the hospital to see my doctors for follow-up going through my medical records, going through all those neurologic exams, 
which painted a picture which would not allow, especially when you had CT and MRI scans showing that all eight lobes of my brain were affected, there was no place in my brain for any kind of hallucination to occur. Uh, and, you know, that was the mystery to me. That's why I wrote Proof of Heaven, ultimately, was this was way too big a shocker. But that's why it's so important that that case report, completely objective, independent physicians, not involved in my care at all, but totally fascinated with my uh, complete recovery over two months, which defies anything in medical uh, reporting. Um, that was a crucial part of, of, of the journey, getting that case report out there. And that just helps to fuel the scientific community's interest in such cases. There are others out there, uh, like Anita Morjani, who had an advanced lymphoma. She had a profound near-death experience. Uh, and when she came back to this world, she knew the lymphoma would disappear. And it did. Mary C. Neal, the orthopedic surgeon, uh, who wrote a beautiful book, uh, To Heaven and Back. Uh, I presented with her and Anita many a time. And Mary C. Neal, a, a warm water drowning while kayaking in Chile, in the late 1990s, where she was uh, broken legs uh, under boulders, underwater, under a waterfall for more than 30 minutes. You don't come back from that fully intact, but she did because she had a profound near-death experience. Given that doctors have admitted for more than six decades the power placebo effect, that is the patient's beliefs to make them better, and if you go to noetics.org and uh, put in the search term spontaneous remission, you'll find more than 3,500 cases of people getting rid of cancer, advanced infections, congenital deformities, et cetera, just through their beliefs that they could do so. Uh, I mean, this is really profound, our power of belief, but it is time for us to start really harvesting that. And of course, if it's important in our health, it has tremendous impact also in all the other events of our lives. And that's where this kind of growing expansion of the notion of free will, the primacy of consciousness, uh, and our role as souls and the nature of the spiritual universe is absolutely essential for the survival and thriving of humanity. Yeah, and I think, you know, the fact that, you know, you were a neurosurgeon makes this all the more compelling as well, someone who knew the brains and their workings. You know, and maybe it makes me think that people have been doing this for years. You know, I've seen that there was a uh, document published there by uh, Central London Medicine in 2018 saying that, they were comparing the DMT experience very closely neurologically linked with NDE. And it seems to me that like kind of throughout history, kind of civilizations have had the, their attempts to make a more spiritual connection using the likes of psilocybin and right. different things like that. What, what's your, um, what's your opinion on that, uh, their cultures from thousands of years back? Well, we write, a, write about psychedelics uh, in our book, living in a mindful universe. I think they're very, very important. Um, in many ways, they reveal a world that kind of parallels that you can get similar lessons to uh, that NDEs and shared death experiences and other spontaneous epiphanies uh, lead to. So we're connecting to similar uh, regions. But in fact, I would caution people for many reasons. Uh, I think there are safer and more effective ways to go deep into primordial mind. And in particular, I would put out uh, sacred acoustics. That's what I use on a daily basis. Um, and I've found it to be tremendously powerful. Differential frequency sounds impact the lower brainstem. And by doing so, they actually have a, a deeper and richer effect on our conscious awareness than psychedelic drugs, which are basically uh, mainly serotonin 2A um, agonist, antagonist drugs that influence the neocortex. So they're kind of 
uh, at the very superficial uh, layers of the, of the final common engine that we think uh, should be generating human consciousness. And yet when you go way down in the evolutionary chain um, to the lower brainstem, which is exactly what sacred acoustics does by using binaural beat, uh, differential frequency brain entrainment, that's where you find the real power of exploration. But getting back to psychedelics, several important points that we talk about. Uh, one is that uh, uh, psychedelics provide one of the most powerful scientifically studied uh, examples of how brain and conscious experience are separate from each other. Uh, and the evidence for that uh, started, in, from my point of view, with a paper out of the Imperial College of London by Robin Carhart Harris um, in uh, 2012. And it's actually referenced in Proof of Heaven in the bibliography, but the textual reference to it in the book was stripped out by editors as we moved along in that process. But the reality is we talk about it extensively in Living in a Mindful Universe, and not only that, but there have been subsequent papers. Uh, now, the 2012 paper, they looked at psilocybin. Uh, in more recent papers, they looked at LSD, uh, and they used not only functional MRI, which is a way of visualizing uh, uh, the activity of neurons in the brain, uh, kind of on large scale, but on short time scale. So it's a very good way at looking at neuronal activity. But also, in the LSD paper, they used uh, magnetoencephalography, which is an even better way of really getting at uh, brain cell activity. But the interesting thing that they point out, and this was also confirmed by a paper out of, uh, out of uh, San Paulo, uh, looking at DMT, dimethyltryptamine, the active principle in ayahuasca, and they all show the same thing. That is, the brain, under the influence of these drugs, goes dark. Anyone who has ever used those drugs will think, wow, that kind of experience, my brain must be lighting up like a Christmas tree. But no, what your brain is doing is going dark. It's getting out of the way. That's exactly what my brain did. Uh, all that evidence in my case report, uh, medical records, CT, MRI scans, neurologic exams, about my neocortex being inactivated uh, and the scans that show that shows you what happens when you get rid of the filtering mechanism of the brain and have a much more ready access uh, to, that, um, to those spiritual realms. And that happens in all of these psychedelic cases too. The brain is not creating it. It's the brain getting out of the way that allows it to happen. But again, there are safer ways than the psychedelics. They create a huge splash a biochemical splash that makes it very difficult to separate signal from noise. Uh, that's why I prefer differential sound uh, like sacred acoustics. And in fact, those technologies were compared with each other head to head in a book by Christopher Bache, B-A-C-H-E. It's called Dark Night, Early Dawn. Uh, he's a very good uh, investigator of consciousness, um, uh, had a practice of high dose LSD sessions, that he's recently written up in another book um, called uh, Diamonds from Heaven. But in his earlier book, Dark Night, Early Dawn, he actually compares the high-dose LSD work for spiritual exploration with differential frequency sounds. In his case, he was using um, uh, sounds that uh, he had learned about from uh, Robert Monroe. Um, and those, uh, from my point of view, are... Uh, a more primitive form. I mean, what uh, Christopher Bates was using uh, 25 years ago was a much more primitive form than people can gain access to now in sacred acoustics. So I highly encourage use the modern stuff if you really want to get the impact. But uh, Bates, Dr. Bates' conclusion was you can go as far, if not farther, 
with the sound-based uh, brain entrainment than you can with the psychedelics. And I would agree with that. Yeah, um, I've, 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 heard, I've heard you speaking about sacred acoustics, actually. It led me down to looking it up myself. And uh, it's very good. I, I only said put a set of earphones on this morning and listened to it very calm and ease feeling. And, uh, you know, I heard you talk about, you know, the sound frequency and how our brains have evolutionized to compartmentalize these kind of things. But on, on the thoughts of one, there being a creator, you know, and a God, and the other of us being um, developed by evolution, how do you reconcile them two notions in your own mind? Oh, well, I think there's definitely evolution going on, but it's on a much, much bigger scale than just uh, our little form of Darwinian evolution here on Earth. Uh, you know, modern science still tries to paint a picture that Darwinian evolution deals with random mutations um, and that it's a chaotic uh, kind of non-guided uh, event. And I would say that that is not true. I believe there's a tremendous amount of purpose and guidance going on and that we are responsible for that, that our uh, kind of expression as human beings is allowing all that. But the reality here is that what is evolving is not of, you know, biological life forms, but it's sentience itself. It's kind of an understanding of relationship with the universe of consciousness um, that is doing the evolving. And for me, I, I would say a lot of that was uh, brought to my attention on reading uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, uh, the author. He was a French paleontologist in the mid 20th century. Um, he was also a Jesuit priest. Uh, and he wrote a book called The uh, a Phenomenon of Maine. And in that book, he talked about evolution in a far grander sense. And I think he was right on the beam. I believe that consciousness throughout the universe is in the process of evolving. And that's what we're all part of. Uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a crucial distinction. But in fact, I would say misinterpretation of Darwin is right at the heart of some of our ongoing travesties of our materialist and kind of me-focused world that thinks that we're separate from other beings. Um, and in fact, if you, if you read The Descent of Man, uh, one of Darwin's later works, uh, he uses the phrase survival of the fittest twice. He uses the word love 98 times. It was not Darwin who steered us down the wrong pathway. It was others like Thomas Huxley who kind of took this on uh, the Darwinian evolution idea with a militant form of materialism, saying it's all about competition, you must destroy your enemy, you know, and that led to a lot of nonsense and very damaging behavior from human beings in the 20th and early 21st century. Yeah. A biologist will tell you today uh, that it's um, cooperation and collaboration that lead to success in biological systems. And for example, when you see a dolphin serving as midwives, in the birthing of whale calves, you start to get the picture of we're all in this together and there's a lot of interspecies and uh, intraspecies collaboration, cooperation that makes every bit of this possible. It's not about defeating or out-eating your, your enemy. That is uh, a myth that has been perpetuated. But is, that's why this awakening to our spiritual nature is so absolutely crucial. Yeah. Uh, tell me, you know, you were talking to different layers or levels of heaven. Um, tell me, you also talked about, you know, you starting off in the uh, worm's eye view. And do you believe then, if, is there a yin to the yang in terms of there's the love, 
and then there's the the dark say to the to the light because you do hear these NDE stories. They're probably not as common, but more more horrific, you know, experiences. Well, I think that um, they're called hellish NDEs, um, uh, and gen- the general literature is that there may be three to five percent of all the NDEs are hellish, um, and. Uh, you know, I, I think for one thing, you got to remember people are even less likely to report a hellish NDE than a pleasant NDE. So they're probably underreported. But on the other hand, I think uh, NDEs uh, at large are vastly underreported. The literature figures suggest 15 to 18 percent of people who have something bad happen to their body that might kill them uh, who survive it have an NDE, but I think the numbers are quite a bit higher than that. You gotta remember that number comes from a historical era where nobody was gonna talk about this. And one thing I'm, I'm proud about with Proof of Heaven is I think that uh, you know it, that book uh, was number one on the New York Times bestseller list for more than 42 weeks. It spent almost two years atop that list. It's been published in more than 42 countries. And the only reason I mention all that is it obviously struck a chord, it resonated with souls. There was some deep sense of truth to it that, that people, uh, you know, were attracted to. And I think that's, that's an important point about it. Um, but, uh, you know, they, that really just kind of points to uh, how it can serve uh, with all the anxiety and, and challenge we have in the COVID pandemic. And I, I think that, uh, for me, just brings up one other point about sacred acoustics, and that is uh, there was a, uh, a beautiful pilot study that came out in the peer-reviewed literature in February of 2020 by Dr. Anna Yusum looking at sacred acoustics to alleviate anxiety. And in fact, in her busy New York Manhattan pro- uh, practice, she found that it alleviated anxiety in 26% of her patients over two weeks compared to nine or, or 7% in controls who only got uh, the standard uh, uh, psychotherapy for anxiety. So especially at this crucial time, I think it's important to remember the power of such tools like sacred acoustics and people can learn more at sacredacoustics.com. But this is really a time of getting back to your question. uh, It was apparent to me in coming back from my journey that the darkness uh, is not like an opposing force. Uh, And this, this will come as a surprise to some people. And a lot of this is also based not just on my experience, by extensive discussion with thousands of NDEers and review of thousands of cases of NDEs and shared death experiences and other uh, epiphanies that to me reveal a background world there of love and of compassion, of kindness, of comfort, our spiritual home that supports all this. And I came back very strongly realizing that uh, the apparent darkness and evil in many ways is just the absence of light and love. And the reason that is so important is because it's not as if we had this battle going on in the earthly realm between uh, forces of good and evil, uh, the forces of good versus the forces of evil, and that someday the forces of evil might hold sway. Uh, Because in fact, um, our ability to share the love and the light completely dispels and eliminates that darkness. Uh, You know, every, every soul that seems to be under a dark curse of some sort has a way out through acknowledging the light and coming to see its connection with the light. And that's why light and love naturally have an ability to overwhelm uh, this entire discussion. I believe that's what is happening. I think that 5,000 years of human destiny and watching the kind of back and forth struggles of humanity, some of which 
we're bringing forces of, of light, some of which bringing forces of darkness. I think that overall pathway uh, generally is one that leads towards justice and towards uh, enlightenment. And that's what I see coming. And that world, that enlightened world, is not one where people are continuously downtrodden by the, by the victorious forces of evil and darkness. It's one where we're all liberated. And we show this tremendous support and taking care of the least and the last of the, and the lost. And from my point of view, that is the arc of destiny when you look at human history. And especially when I see what is emerging now in this awakening of understanding of primacy of consciousness that really emphasizes our highest good as spiritual beings in the spiritual universe. It's one that offers tremendous opportunity for hope, uh, and for um, resilience uh, in recognizing the power of good and love that we can bring to this world. I believe ultimately that is our heritage, and that's where I see all of this evolving. Uh, this is not to deny that in your spiritual journeys you won't encounter apparent darkness at some of the lower levels. That's what I saw in my earthworm eye view. If I had had a near-death experience where I went to the earthworm eye view, was kind of battered about by the forces there and then came back to this world, I would have had a hellish NDE. From my point of view, hellish NDEs are, are incomplete. Um, and uh, I, I think that uh, the, the broader picture that is painted, uh, especially when you look at consciousness writ large through all these various ways of, of looking at consciousness, not just neuroscience, not just philosophy of mind, not just quantum physics, but looking at these extraordinary human journeys that suggest afterlife and reincarnation, that's when we start to see a much uh, more optimistic and beautiful picture of human potentiality. And that's why I believe this awakening is so crucial. From my point of view, the COVID pandemic and all of that is happening almost perfectly on schedule, as is the awakening of the scientific community to the reality of our spiritual nature. Every bit of this is here to help rescue us from our own worst forces, um, much of which has been unleashed through um, the dominance of materialist thinking. Uh, I mean, the chemists committed their sins in World War I with the development of machine guns, high explosives, and poisonous gases. The physicists committed their sins in World War II, uh, bringing uh, nuclear weapons on the scene. And I promise you, if we're ever uh, science-denying and dumb enough, to have a World War III, any future conflicts will be fought with sticks and stones. It is time to wake up. Tell me, um, you talk a bit about reincarnation. You, you kind of came back with that um, realization. And um, it, it, the idea, I suppose, personally, is a bit, I wouldn't say unnerving, but it's, um, it almost gets the feeling that maybe there's, there will be a sense of maybe an identity crisis or, you know, where does it end, you know, when you complete? Is it just a series of lessons that you must learn to go through? Or what well, you know? I, think, I think the best way to explain that is it fits into that notion I mentioned a while ago, the evolution of all consciousness. Uh, Taylor de Chardin, read the phenomenon of man. It's uh, evolution towards what he called the omega point uh, of, of enlightenment. And I believe we're all just participating in that uh, whole process of, um, of kind of education. Uh, you know, that old saying uh, um, in, in uh, 
uh, politics. You know, all politics is local. Well, also all evolution of consciousness throughout the universe is nothing more than the journey of individual sentient beings and coming to understand more fully their relationship with the universe. Um, and that's what I believe this is all truly about. Uh, and this is um, something that we're really, every soul is important. Uh, no soul left behind. And, uh, you know, for those who want to participate more in that kind of a glorious journey, uh, join us. Join my uh, co-author of my third book, Living the Mindful Universe, my partner uh, in life and all this, Karen Newell, the co-founder of sacredacoustics.com, uh, and, and go to unitedandhopeandhealing.com. And every Every other Thursday, we do a webinar there, but just looking at the past webinars with the guests we have, uh, like Dr. Pim Van Lommel, uh, coming up will be uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Larry Dossi and, and his, and his uh, wife and partner, uh, Barbara. Uh, we also had Dr. Anna Yusum on, as I mentioned a while ago, she was the head of that pilot study that showed such profound effect of sacred acoustics by Nor Beats against uh, anxiety and depression. Uh, in a clinical setting, uh, and they've all been guests. So if you go to unitedandhopeandhealing.com, you'll find much more information there, all available uh, for free to uh, enable people to get on board with this revolution. We're all part of it. The world is expanding rapidly, and it's important that our dominant cultural mindset, which for several centuries now has been dominated by that false separatism of materialism, needs to be replaced by the emergent emerging quantum-informed notion of consciousness as a unifying force that brings us all together. Not only that, with a shared sense of purpose and meaning in the, the evolution of this uh, universe at large. Yeah. It can be, you know, I know we touched on this a little bit earlier on, but I think it's such an amazing story, if, if you don't mind finishing it out, about your spirit guides and who um, the identity following on from when you came out of the coma well, this is a little bit of a, uh, a spoiler alert, although the whole story is really so beautiful, it would take me an hour to really tell it properly. But to cut to the chase, since you asked, and it is a spoiler alert, because this is how the book Proof of Heaven comes to an end, I think it is a way that absolutely stuns people and grabs their attention. Um, so stop listening now if you want to uh, enjoy that book more. Hey, sorry, maybe I shouldn't have asked. <laughs> But I mean, I, I will actually just give the short answer because believe me, there's still a lot more a big a power in that book to help people get the really complete yeah. uh, version of this. But the upshot of it is I was adopted. Um, and I tell that story early on in Proof of Heaven and about how it led to all kinds of ups and downs in my life. I had looked for my birth mother when I was younger. She was nowhere to be found. Uh, but anyway, I did end up meeting her in... Uh, uh, in October 2007, and that story is fully told in uh, the book Proof of Heaven. Uh, but the, the kind of upshot to, to what you're getting at is that um, I found out when I first learned of my birth mother that she'd actually buried my, uh, married my birth father. I found that out in February of 2000, which was, um, you know, eight years before my coma experience. Uh, and in fact, it came as a perceived rejection from my birth mother that sent me into the dark night of the soul. I spent the eight years before coma giving up on any belief in God, power of prayer, and heaven or an afterlife. That was all gone from my thinking. I became strongly agnostic. And that, of course, was the setup for my going into coma. And I think I had to have that, I, you know, healthy skepticism is a gift. 
many people out there who claim to be skeptics, especially scientists who say, I'm a, I'm a real skeptic. Well, most of them are actually pseudo skeptics. They've made up their mind long ago. They don't give a hoot about uh, empirical data, and they certainly don't care about rational argument. They're completely immune to all of that. They're willfully ignorant. But true open-minded skepticism is a gift. In fact, I was my own worst skeptic for months in trying to make sense of this. I kept doubting everything uh, to try and make sense of it all. And, and that's what I think is so important is, yes, we have to have doubt, but crucially, we must have an open mind. And we must not buy into someone else's thinking about things. That's why Karen and I, in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, make such a giant point about meditation going within. For me, meditation is a form of centering prayer. It's all about connecting to that one mind and our higher soul and finding out for ourselves about why we're here and where this is all supposed to lead. Um, and and that's, that's just kind of uh, the beautiful gift of it all is learning that it's a personal experience that actually can get you there. And luckily the tools exist with things like sacred acoustics for every soul to jump on this bandwagon and get into personal exploration and engage much more fully with this revolution in the understanding of consciousness. That's great. And you do have a few more um, upcoming projects. I know you have the GalileoCommission.org. You uh, work with a few scientists, a hundred scientists or something. Is it? You want to tell yes, us? I think that's a very important resource for uh, your more scientifically inclined audience. Uh, GalileoCommission.org. Uh, it's a beautiful manifesto re written by Harold Wallach uh, in Europe. And uh, with the support of a lot of scientists from around the world, I'm one of more than a hundred who have endorsed this work and who promote it uh, in my, uh, all of my uh, presentations and interviews, things like that. Uh, very important. And of course, it's named because um, Galileo, uh, several hundred years ago, looking through his telescope, he saw the moons of Jupiter. But when he tried to get a, a relative who was a bishop in the, in the church to look through the telescope, the bishop refused to look. And in many ways, that's the attitude of many scientists today who claim to be, uh, you know, leading scientists, and yet, no, they won't look through the telescope. They won't re review the evidence for non-local consciousness and the reality uh, for this uh, fantastic vision that so many scientists like those in Galileo Commission are putting out there. And it is one that supports the spiritual nature of the universe and that we're spiritual beings that are fully engaged uh, in this universe and our understanding of it. These are all natural phenomena, you know, of uh, materialist scientists trying to say, oh, that's all supernatural bunk. Well, no, consciousness is a very real thing. It's the only thing any one of us has ever known. And materialist science tries to put consciousness into the phenomenon of not real doesn't exist. No, uh, we really need to take the bull by the horns and grow this thing. And that has to do with the science. And the problem has been that for so many years, uh, decades, centuries, this has been about the specialist, you know, the scientific specialist who leads the way. But consciousness is such a deep and profound mystery. You need to be a specialist in many different fields to get it. That's why in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, we had to resort not only to quantum physics, not only to neuroscience, not only to philosophy of mind, uh, but to uh, all the parapsychological information supporting the reality of non-local consciousness, telepathy, remote viewing, near-death experiences, shared death, the past life memories in children, reincarnation, bum, 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 all of this tremendous body of work is what you look at if you want to make sense of it. Yeah. So uh, it's high time for this world to wake up to this. It will change the world. 
And I promise you, there is no going back. Because once you start to realize this, as the world will, there's no going back to the simplistic nonsense of materialism that tries to pretend when you die, your awareness goes to zero. That's the opposite of what actually happens. And that's a crucial part of the lesson. But even more important is that we're all connected. We're all connected to a binding force of love. And that's why it's so crucial that we honor what every major religious system has in its uh, 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 code system, the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated. That's the most profound message. It comes out of life reviews of near-death experiences going back thousands of years where you see that in the life review, you experience you know, what, is, what uh, your interactions were with others from their emotional point of view. It's a beautiful uh, lesson that we're all in this together and we really must take care of each other. And that is the deepest lesson of this awakening in the science of consciousness uh, in leading us forward. Yeah. And, you know, I think I had my own kind of journey of enlightenment a couple of years ago, which, like you said, I was I was skeptical. But I did always think there's a little bit more to, to life than usual. But um, since then, it's like I realized that life is about, you know, finding that meaning and finding I've delved into these. This is the reason why we're speaking today or why I'm sitting here is because I found that path and I realized the appreciation of, of nature and of life and the afterlife and, you know, the bigger things in life. And like you said, do unto others. And, you know, um, I, I think that, you know, maybe we're here in life to figure out these things for ourselves. And I think that it only has such a, such a big effect on our lives, really opens our eyes. It's like they say, the scales fall from your eyes and then right. you on from there. Oh, it's a beautiful gift. And it's also very refreshing. And uh, I mean, it's more like being at home. I mean, having this kind of awareness of the bigger kind of mission, the bigger purpose, the connectedness, um, it's very, very refreshing. And it certainly helps uh, fuel our fight against the injustice um, and, and the kind of travesty of uh, the raping and pillaging of this world that that materialist mindset and false uh, interpretation of Darwinian evolution and trying to conquer, you know, uh, others as opposed to realizing we're all in this together. Uh, it's a very crucial lesson for us to finally get. We've spent a long, hard time of thousands of years of human suffering trying to get to this point. So it's high time that we grew up to the mission. And again, ultimately, this is about facing the real challenge, which is climate change, uh, which will ultimately destroy all life on Earth uh, and be our responsibility. So it's high time we took responsibility for healing this plan and the damage that our false separatist thinking of materialism has led us into. That's great. Listen, Dr. Alexander, I really appreciate you coming on and talking. And I really do recommend um, your three books, Proof of Heaven, Maps of Heaven, and Living in a Mind for the Universe. And like I said, you can, you can hear the end of the story yourself if you read them books. It really is a great story. And um, I really appreciate it. I hope we get to talk again in the future. And you're well, on. I would love to. That'd be great. And also, I'd, I'd love at some point to bring Karen on. Yeah, uh, you'll find when you when you talk with her, she's my best half. Uh, she's why the audiences want us to keep coming back. So you want Karen on too, Karen Newell. That's great. Uh, listen, I really appreciate that, and I'm going to put your links in the bottom of this talk. And the next day or, or two, will be up online. And look, it's fantastic. Great. Well, thanks so much, Anthony. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care, and we'll talk soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. bye.